0: Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us this afternoon. Uh, I'm Andrew Hunter. I'm director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group at CSIS, and we're delighted that you're joining us today, and we hope also that you'll join us in the future, because today is the first uh, in a series of events exploring the implications of synthetic biology uh, and its importance to, to the economy, to national security, um, and also just trying to learn more about it, because it's a fascinating topic. And this series is taking place in the context of, uh, from our perspective here at CSIS, a a very intense conversation about how emerging technologies are affecting the economy and how they're affecting national security. Uh, And there's a list of them that um, comes up a lot. Artificial intelligence, quantum computing, 5G, uh, and on that list is synthetic biology. Uh, But our perception is sometimes synthetic biology is the one that gets less discussed perhaps because in the strange universe that is national security where you have uh, technical types who are often engineers uh, and focus on the physical sciences and then you have political science types Uh, who don't really know much of the technical stuff, but they've learned a lot of the jargon over the years. Uh, But neither group really knows that much about biology and about the life sciences. And so uh, I think sometimes in the National Security Committee, we especially struggle with this technology. And the goal of today, especially, and of this series, is to correct that imbalance and to uh, understand the implications of this field uh, much better. And so, as I mentioned, this is going to be an ongoing series. The series title is Synthetic Biology, The Ongoing Technology Revolution. Uh, And today's event is uh, kind of an introduction to the science of synthetic biology uh, and to uh, help tee up how that science feeds into some of the key national security, economic, and policy questions currently uh, being debated today on emerging technology. Uh, Before I get too much farther in, I I do want to recognize the fact that uh, we are here today because we received support from Ginkgo Bioworks, so we would like to thank them uh, for helping to make this series possible. Uh, And I also want to do our uh, standard security announcement. Uh, It's been a long time since we've had a security event at CSIS and we don't anticipate one. But if something were to happen, uh, I would be your security officer and would give you uh, directions on where to go, either back out the way you came in or out the back, depending on what the situation was. Uh, And it is my pleasure now to uh, call up and to introduce my colleague, Morgan Dwyer, who is Deputy Director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group for Policy Analysis. Uh, And she is uh, kind of the guru for this series, and she is also going to moderate today's discussion. So, Morgan.
1: Thank you, uh, Andrew, and thank you, for everyone, um, for coming to our first event today. Uh, We have a set of excellent panelists. I'm really excited for the discussion. Um, Just to introduce everyone before we ask them to give some opening remarks. Um, In the middle, we've got Dr. Gigi Granville. Um, She's a senior scholar and associate professor at Johns Hopkins. Um, Her research there focuses primarily on health security, and she's also the author of the book, Synthetic Biology, Safety, Security, and Promise. Um, On the far, my left side, we've got Dr. Jason Kelly. Um, He is the co-founder and CEO of Ginkgo Bioworks. Um, So Ginkgo is a synthetic biology company that genetically engineers made to order microbes uh, for customers across a variety of industries. Um, And then directly next to me, we've got um, Dr. Diane Deulis. Uh, She's a senior research fellow at the National Defense University where she focuses on emerging biotech and biodefense. Uh, She's also previously worked at the Department of Health and Human Services um, and at at OSTP at the White House. Um, So since this is our first event, I've asked each of the speakers to spend a bit more time really diving in um, to the content um, to help us all get up to speed on this pretty technical topic. Um, So we're gonna kick off with Gigi, who's gonna focus on synthetic biology's historic intersection with national security. Jason uh, will then tell us where synthetic biology is today um, and how it's driving economic growth. Um, And then Diane is going to try to tie in both the economic and national security aspects um, of this new emerging technology. Um, So with that, I will hand it off to Gigi. I I think we
2: are going to keep that. Yeah, if that's
1: And We're probably going to use the podium. Sorry. Sorry about that.
2: You did it very nicely, quietly, though. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Okay, thank you very much for the introduction and for the um, invitation to talk to you today. Uh, it's nice to see some familiar faces in the audience, and so my apologies um, for if you've heard some of this before. Um, there was a
1: clicker. It's here. Ah, there we
0: go. Got it. There you go.
4: Thank you.
3: Okay, so first of all, what is synthetic biology? Um, a lot of people, when they talk about synthetic biology, they uh, sometimes um, sometimes the more uh, jaded might say, it's really just the word that people use whenever they want to talk about anything that's cool in biology. Um, and so that is, that, is uh, that occasionally happens, but most of the time when people talk about synthetic biology, it's really about um, uh, making biology easier to engineer and more useful and to have more um, everyday applications. And um, so there are formal definitions that are, that are there. Um, it is a little confusing because people use the term synthetic biology to refer to the academic field. Um, and the research that's done in that field. But they also use synthetic biology to refer specifically to tools that are used in many types of life science um, fields. So when people talk about CRISPR, which is a a gene editing tool, they talk about that as a synthetic biology tool. But um, CRISPR is used across the life sciences and different kinds of research. So it gets a little confusing, but it's the cool stuff about making biology easier to engineer. And it's helping to bring forth two major trends in the life sciences, one of which is the industrialization of biology um, and replacing chemical, process, chemical engineering processes um, with a more um, biological approach. And so biology is being used now to make medicines, um, and products that you might not know of uh, fiber in your car um, Flavorings detergents and adhesives, etc. It's also helping to usher in another trend in, um in biology and that's the personalization of biology that um, That it uh, not just medicines that are that are tailored to you and to your cancer for example Um, but also to um, things that are just interesting to you but maybe not interesting as an NIH grant. So um, things that are about your ancestry, your health, what's in your food, um, and there are businesses that are developing around this my, one of my favorites are a lot of apartment complexes are using this to keep track of the, um, which pets reside in the building so that they can use this, I assume, as a deterrent for people picking up after their pets. And I, I just love the story that you see in the corner, which I guess is not really that readable, but Barbara Streisand, who is a really big anti-GMO person, nonetheless got her dog cloned. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and she now had uh, like a bunch of dogs after that experience and gave them away. Um, but she has a really great New York Times op-ed about it which I recommend if you, if you just want to have something light that will also blow your mind. Okay. Um, so part of the being able to answer your own questions is because the technologies and the, te- the tools are more accessible to everyday people there are are opportunities for people to ask their own questions and answer them in the laboratory. And um, you see this at a a competition level with iGEM, the International Genetically Engineered Machine Competition, which is mostly an undergraduate competition, kind of in um, in the tradition of the robotics competitions that you might be more familiar with. And also in community laboratories. We have one in Baltimore called BUGS, the Baltimore Underground Science Center, um, which has a big educational role as well as uh, an opportunity for people who have always been curious about biology and want a place to do, to do that kind of work. So. Um, as was mentioned, I'm in a, uh, my focus is on health security, and, um, and while I have a lot of there are a lot of positive, many many positive things about what is going on in synthetic biology, there are nonetheless biosecurity concerns, and um, you may have some yourself when you're thinking about how people have more control in the laboratory, and what if people somebody was uh, uses to a more nefarious end, and as we see on the global stage. Um, even though nobody brags about their biological weapons capabilities, there is a biological weapons convention. We have forsworn this. Um, there are the norms against some, some illegal weapons have been fading, and that's especially true in the chemical world, but, um, but we worry about that in biology as well. So as a pathway to this, that leads you to be concerned about the work that gets put forward into the world that's done for beneficent purposes, but could nonetheless be misused by somebody who has ill intent. And there's a lot of um, research and interest in dual-use research, what they call dual-use research, or dual-use research of concern, um, the life sciences research that could be misused um, to, to weaponization ends. Um, There is the conundrum here is that um, this is beneficent research, it often has very important medical or um, other benefits and so it's really hard to know what to do about it even if you identify research as dual use, then what? And there have been a number of papers in uh, the last decade and a half or so um, where people have uh, gotten outraged at specific aspects of life science research that is dual use. um, And it's very hard to come to agreement even if everybody can agree that there are problems with it. And um, these are some of those papers now which I can talk more about in exhaustive detail if you're interested. (laughs) So uh, some time ago the national academies um, uh, there was a report um, in 2003 where they uh, called the Fink Report after its chairman where they identified a group of experiments that might lead to dual use research. And so if you're going to do any of these experiments, um, you should have some thoughtfulness about how you communicate what you're doing and how you do the work. Um, these, this list hasn't really changed so much in the in, the, in 15 years, um, but the conversation about what to do about it is sometimes no closer to, um, to uh, completion than it was then. So there's strong inter- interest in managing DIRC, or Dual Use Research of Concern, which has unfortunately been made into an acronym, DIRC. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, there's a lot, it's really challenging to have consensus over over these, um, these arguments. Um, some people who are very familiar with these issues maybe have spent hundreds of hours in discussions over one of those papers. And I, I'm unfortunately not exaggerating. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, who decides what you do about some of these conundrums is really um, a problem, because the life sciences have been traditionally very open, and sharing of information is paramount. We don't have that history of classification, even though there is classified research in the life sciences. So, recently, um, the National Academies uh, came out with this report. I was um, lucky enough to be on this committee along with Dr. Deulis. Um, we, uh, this was an attempt to try and uh, look at advances in the, in the life sciences, like just how much of a security problem are you dealing with here? So, um, a new paper comes out, and it's a CRISPR application and something, and you think, hmm, Is that really increasing our vulnerability in uh, biosecurity? And let's come up with a a thoughtful, objective framework to walk through the problem and see, you know, is is it hype or is it real when it comes to the security threats? And that's one of the things that this report um, is attempting to address, because a biological weapon... um, and is not just the science, there's a whole, there's the delivery, there's characteristics of the person who might use it or the nation state who might use it. There's a lot of complexity in this biosecurity problem that's not encompassed in a single scientific paper. And so um, this gives a framework for being able to look at a new advance and, um, and analyze it objectively to see if there's a security problem and uh, Diane and I published this paper walking through one of these uh, uh, dual-use issues um, that was uh, generated some controversy a couple years ago, um, the synthesis of horsepox virus. Nobody really cares so much about horsepox, but the problem is um, that horsepox is very, very close to smallpox, which was eradicated in the last century, um, and uh, in that last century um, caused more deaths than all Wars combined, which is saying something for the 20th century. So people have legitimate concerns about this, um, but we uh, were we examined just how much of a security vulnerability that synthesis um, represented. So that is really my walkthrough of um, the uh, synthetic biology, and um, and I look forward to your questions after everybody is presented. Thank you.
2: Yeah, it's under here. Okay. Great. Okay. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Jason Kelly, the co founder and CEO at Ginkgo Bioworks. Uh, so, I actually, that Andrew's uh, setup there was quite good. So, I, I think I'm really excited to see. Uh, the, the folks that the folks in this room and the folks you engage with out in the government um, really focusing on emerging technologies that that matter uh, to the country. And I think AI, quantum, 5G, these are things that people have some sense of and then you hear synthetic biology and nobody has any idea what's going on with that. Uh, and so really uh, what I'd love to do today is just sort of get it on your radar from the standpoint of what's going on on the commercial side that's driving this. Uh, and I'm glad Gigi had a chance to go first and, and highlight some of the the possible security implications, but I think on the commercial side, this is sort of a train that's moving, uh, and I want to convey a little bit of sort of what's happening with the technology, some of the inevitability of it, um, so you get that in your head as well. Um, And so uh, I'll I'll dive in. Uh, So I've been involved with the field since uh, probably around 2002, that's the last 18 years or so since I I started my PhD. This is past year, 2019, was probably about the most exciting year for synthetic biology that I've experienced. Um, It's the cover of The Economist from April. It says, Redesigning Life, the Promise of Synthetic Biology. Synthetic biology is a, a term of art that we made up back at MIT in the, in the mid-'90s, basically. It was like, oh, it's going to be like synthetic chemistry, so we'll call it synthetic biology, right? So, so it's exciting to see it being picked up this way. Um, the White House held uh, a summit on uh, the bioeconomy, as many of you might be aware, of, a few months back. This is a follow-on from summits around AI and quantum, so I think you are seeing this awareness. This is a, a new technology. But what is it? What, what, you know, what's going on with synthetic biology? So, so the simplest way, if you leave with nothing else today, the idea behind synthetic biology is that we can program cells like we program computers because they run on digital code in the form of DNA. So it's ATCs and Gs, not zeros and ones, but as I'll talk about when I explain some of the technology, we can read this code with DNA sequencing and we can write this code with DNA synthesis or DNA printing. And if you can read and write code, you have a machine that'll run it, which is sort of how we think of a cell, that's programming. And I'll just explain the photo up at the top left if so like that. Uh, it's uh, my co-founder, Tom Knight. Uh, this is him back at MIT in the early 70s. That's his master's thesis in the middle. That was a mini computer, all right? So, so Tom had this experience at the forefront of electrical engineering and computer science, mid-90s, does a study sponsored by DARPA uh, to focus on this idea of programming cells. And that was really the catalyst for the field. So, so I think we have this strong origin in computers and programming. I'm gonna use that today to explain the technology to you. Uh, Just to to push on on the metaphor a bit, Um, uh, I read this, I was reading a book about IBM, and I really liked this. Uh, So so this was a a quote by Peter Drucker, uh, who's ultimately a famous management consultant. And at the time, he was a reporter in Germany, and he went to a talk from Tom Watson, Sr. So this was the sort of founding CEO of IBM, Uh, and he said, you know, uh, uh, Watson began talking about something called data processing. It made absolutely no sense to me. No one knew what data processing was. I took it back and told my editor, and he said, Watson was a nut, and he threw the interview away. All right. this is us today with cell programming, right? But, but what, what Watson was trying to do was to, to use the terminology of the time, processing. We will process data like we process or, right? Because people knew that. You're gonna take a raw input and it's gonna go through a big machine and it's gonna become more valuable. But we're gonna do that with data. And everyone's like, what the hell are you talking about? Right, and, and, and that's really how we see so that biology today. We were gonna program a cell like we program a computer, okay? Um, on the industrial side, there's been a lot of investment. Uh, so I don't actually have the 19 numbers, but it's higher than this, uh, uh, roughly doubling from two billion to four billion dollars of venture capital investment uh, in, in between 17 and 18. This is a uh, stats put together by our sort of uh, nascent industry organization, Beta. Uh Here's a photo I like from our uh, the industry meeting this year. So that's John Cumbers. He's the founder uh, of that of that in- industry group. Uh, he skateboarded onto the stage uh, with that jacket. I'll explain. Uh, so that uh, parka there is made uh, with uh, spider silk, all right, but this is spider silk that's been pr- produced by engineering a yeast, right, so the kind of yeast you use to make beer, to have the genes from spiders brewed up produced this silk and there's a, a company called Spiber that produces this jacket and also a, a composite material that's in that skateboard. So this is an example of some consumer products coming out in the area of biology. And I'll, I'll explain a few others that are driving this, right? This is a big year for us. Uh, you know, uh, The industry we had, go uh, Public, that's one of the key companies in the space. It's really the first big IPO of these ve- early venture-backed companies. Ginkgo raised $300 million. And I would say we're sort of like entering our teenager phase as an industry, right? We're like skateboarding, we're a little bit awkward, uh, but we're starting to take on more responsibility and growing, so, so I think this is sort of, uh, if you wanna understand where the industry is, okay? So I wanna highlight, just to start with, what are some of the applications that are driving all that investment today? And then I'm gonna talk a little bit about what's happening with the technology, why it's happening right now, okay? So what, what, what are example applications? So you might have heard of the Impossible Burger, Okay? This is now rolled out nationwide as the Impossible Whopper. You can go to any Burger King and get one of these things. This is what it looks like. It's a veggie burger. All right, you bite into this thing, and it bleeds. Well, how are they doing that? You know, there's not a lot of blood in plants, okay? So what Impossible's done is they've taken the gene, okay, so the piece of genetic code, they read that DNA code that encodes for hemoglobin, heme, that makes your blood red. And then they took brewer's yeast, all right, the kind of yeast you use to make beer. They took that hemoglobin gene, and they, programmed it into the brewer's yeast. So then when you brew that thing up, instead of beer coming out, you get this hemoglobin. And then they add that back into a veggie burger and it tastes right, it smells right, it cooks right, because it turns out that hemoglobin, that blood component is a key part of what meat makes meat taste like meat. And this tastes so good that it's, again, being rolled out by really a traditional kind of fast food chain, right? So so that's an example, I think when people think biotech historically, they've thought therapeutics, and I'll talk about a few of those, but as the cost and capabilities of synthetic biology are improving, you're going to see it end up in more and more consumer goods. It's going to end up being a bigger part of sort of the consumer conversation. Does that make sense? Uh, this one's a little uh, project I quite like. Uh, so a partnership we have with uh, Bayer Crop Science. So Bayer bought Monsanto, they're now the largest ag biotech company in the world. They wanted to work on the problem of fertilizer production. All right, so the way we get synthetic fertilizer today, I'll nerd out for a minute, so I'm a, I'm a chemical engineer. Uh, this was a process called Haber-Bosch. It's like the pride of chemical engineering. You basically pull atmospheric gas, all right, through a big chemical plant. Gas, the air you breathe, 70% nitrogen, all right? You burn natural gas, 4% globally, to combine that nitrogen with hydrogen and make ammonia, put it in a bag, ship it out to farmers, 80 billion dollars a year, they pour it on a field, half goes to the crop, half ends up in the river, local environmental problem, global greenhouse gas problem, but we all get to eat, okay? That's synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. Certain crops, like soybeans, we don't need to add much fertilizer, why? They have microbes in their roots that are running Haberbosch, they're pulling nitrogen out of there and they're fertilizing the crop. If you remember like crop rotation from elementary school, that was what was going on, right? Well, corn, wheat, and rice, half a global fertilizer usage, they don't have these microbes. So what does bear want to do? They want to take the genetic code, read that code from the soybean microbe, take the corn microbes, the microbes that live on the corn, and reprogram them to have that same capability as the soybean microbes so that you could ultimately wean those crops off of fertilizer. Huge possible uh, both market and uh, um, greenhouse gas impact. Oops! Someone in the back, give that a click. Yeah, yeah no, exa- no it's, it's like a right click or something. Uh, well, anyway, I think I know what the next one is. Um, so I'll, t- I'll uh, talk next about some stuff that's happening in the therapeutic side. So there's a company called uh, Synlogic, which is a uh, company that's engineering probiotic bacteria, like that you'd buy a probiotic in the store, and they're adding in the genes to fill in missing metabolic step for certain patients, right? So you have these patients that have diseases, rare diseases where they're missing a step in their metabolism and they can't break down certain foods. And so as a result, they accumulate these toxic metabolites and what Synlogic is doing is they're saying, I'll take the gene that you're missing, I'll put it in your gut bacteria and you will take a therapeutic that's alive, a living cell and it will break down that metabolite for you. Okay, does that make sense? So these are drugs that are alive, right? And, and probably the best example of this, and sorry, the text got light there, uh, is um, a company called Kite Pharma, which was bought for about $11 billion by Gilead recently. They developed a technology called CAR-T, all right? What is this? It, people come down with usually a blood-borne cancer for these technologies, and what they've done is they take the immune cells of that patient, they genetically engineer them so that they have a targeting sequence for that cancer, and they put them back, again, as a live cell therapeutic, as an immune cell to go hunt and kill that cancer. And this is probably, probably the most uh, sort of hot area in therapeutics today, and it's a genetically engineered live cell therapy. And, and if you look, you know, from my standpoint, a living cell just has a lot more power compared to a, a small molecule chemical or things like that. I think in the future, many of your drugs, probably the majority of your drugs, will ultimately be alive uh, as this technology improves that make sense? Okay, all right, so that's what I wanted to say, a few, that, so that's sort of what's driving all that, you know, $4 billion of investment into venture stage companies in the last year. What, what's happening on the technology side? So, all right, so I mentioned we can program cells like we program computers, so I'll draw an analogy. Uh, so this is a, a computer I quite like, uh, the DEC PDP-8, sort of beautiful machine from uh, 1965, all right? And I want to explain why programmability is important. Right? So programmability allows you to put different code into the same machine and reuse this old computer for a whole bunch of different markets. Right? You can just use the same investment with new code and get new applications. That's the power of programmability. And in computers this was so powerful because it was also coupled to something else that was observed in 1965 which is what's become called Moore's law. So this is a a quote from Gordon Moore, one of the founders of Intel. And he was measuring over the last few years, how many transistors Intel could put on a chip. And what he observed was the rate of increase, he he said, we expect it to be, it looks like about a factor of two per year. Over the longer term, the rate of increase is a bit more uncertain, although there is no reason to believe it will not remain nearly constant for at least 10 years. Which is pretty funny because this went on for 50 years uh, and Moore's law drove the number of, uh, of transistors on a chip from a thousand back in 1970 to modern trip chips in the tens of billions of transistors. And this is what's powering the fact that that combination of prog- programmability and exponential improvement is why five of the largest companies in the world today are tech companies, right? And by the way, US tech companies, which I'll, I'll get back to in a second. All right. What about biology? All right. Well, the technologies to engineer biology today are exponentially improving, all right? So this is reading and writing DNA. So the blue line up there is the cost to sequence a human genome. So it's gone from $100 million for the first human genome back in 2000, you can buy a machine today from a company called Illumina in San Diego that will sequence a human genome for $1,000, okay? 100,000 fold cost improvement over that period of time. The dotted line at the top, that's Moore's law. That's, That's that incredibly fast rate of improvement in computing. Reading DNA has been completely destroying Moore's law over the last 20 years. And then the red line is writing DNA. Okay? And this is something that Ginkgo does a lot of. We're about 25% of worldwide DNA printing. All right? And you know, back when I was in grad school, it was, you know, call it, in the dollars per base pair. Now it's in the pennies per base pair. So it's getting cheaper, again, about 100,000-fold over that same period of time. All right? The last, uh, two more things I'll explain on the technology side. One, you've probably read about CRISPR. What does CRISPR allow us to do? It allows us to edit, to sort of insert that printed DNA into a location in a genome of increasingly complex organisms. So think mammalian cells, things like that. So humans, uh, a lot of your livestock, plants, it's a lot easier now to target a certain spot in the genome and put in some of that DNA I just talked about being able to print. Does that make sense? So it's sort of like a find and replace function. Okay? The last technology I'll mention is essentially automation and software being applied to the work I would have done back in grad school, which is a scientist hunched over a bench using their two arms uh, to do laboratory experiments. That's not how it's done anymore. At places like Ginkgo, this is our facility in Boston. And what we've shown now is we're starting to see a scale economic like an auto plant or like a semiconductor fab, we invest now hundreds of millions of dollars into large facilities that greatly reduce the cost of doing that compiling and debugging of code. All right, and this is an important point, I think which I'll bring up later uh, around what the government should be doing. When you have these types of scale effects like you did in semiconductors, like we did in the auto industry, in the airline industry, there's an enormous first mover advantage to the companies and to the countries that invest in these technologies. There's a reason that that the United States has Intel, there's a reason that the United States has Google, uh, and a lot of that has to do with our early investment uh, in in technologies that are exponentially improving. Does that make sense? Okay, little secret, uh, Moore's Law is actually running out. Uh, So if you look at uh, Intel's latest roadmaps, they're years behind. Uh, So so the sort of exponential improvement curve in traditional tech and computers is starting to hit, as they always eventually do, a flat line. So I think it's important to note that in biotechnology and synthetic biology, we're just at the start of this, right? And so I think that that's if you're asking what are going to be the five largest, you know, five of the ten largest companies, 30, 40 years from now, it's not going to be computer companies. It's going to be biology companies, going to be bio companies. All right. So I'm going to end with uh, just a, a short thing here. So, so I, I do give a lot of talks in Silicon Valley. Speaking of chips, uh, and so I would like to show this slide, right? And I like to ask, you know, hey, what, what's the most complicated? device on the table there, right? The answer is the house plant, right? And and the answer is like obviously the house plant, right? Like the house plant is self-repairing, right? Imagine if you broke your iPhone screen and it fixed itself over the next week. We'd all be hailing Tim Cook as a god, right? You know, right? It's self-assembling, right? You plant a seed, you add air, water, and sunlight, and this thing just builds itself with no manufacturing facility. You know, what, imagine what that would do. Right? It, it, it's self-replicating. You have one, it makes the seeds to produce more. What would that do to Apple's margins if the iPhone just copied itself? Right? And finally, it's renewable. When you're done with it, you just throw it on the ground. It melts away into the environment. Right? So, so at a macro level, biology is by far the most sophisticated technology here. What about at a micro level? Right? So, so you might have seen these little guys uh, you know, like in high school biology class. You look at like a little drop of pond water. You uh, see one of these little algae that little, I'll draw your attention to that little hair hanging off the back of that thing. It spins around, so it's what's called a flagella, all right? And it, it operates like a propeller, basically. It, it spins and it, and it drives that bacteria through the water, all right? Here's a close-up at the top, okay? You can see those flagellar tails, all right? And, and I'll draw your attention to where the tail meets the body of that microbe, okay? At that location is this device shown up here on the left. It's called a flagellar motor, all right? It's a 30,000 RPM rotary motor. Red disc spins inside the blue disc, all right? To give you a sense of scale, this is one of those transistors of which there's billions on a current Intel chip, all right, on the lower right, 40 nanometer scale bar. Same 40 nanometer scale bar on that flagellar motor. So in the same area where Intel, with a $5 billion manufacturing facility, is able to make these two dumb hunks of silicon, biology, is building a 30,000 RPM rotary motor, putting atoms in three dimensions for free in one of the puddles outside right now. Where, where is that level of molecular manufacturing on Intel's roadmap? 100 years out? 500 years out? Right? This is something biology is capable of doing today. Right? So when you put these together, you have nanoscale precision. In other words, biology places atoms better than the semiconductor industry. That's our best industry at doing that sort of thing. And you combine self-assembly and self-replication and you get cotton in scale production. Think about the industrial agriculture and jungles, right? Biology makes more physical stuff every year already than the auto industry, the oil industry. It just makes stuff, right? And so it's better at the small stuff and it's better at the large stuff. Well, so why don't we use it to make everything? Well, the answer is we are obviously going to end up using biology to make everything. It is dramatically superior technology. What we've been missing is the ability to program it to do new things, and that's what synthetic biology is. It's this technology to allow us to improve our ability to program what is intrinsically powerful technology. Okay, and I'll end on this. Look, you can thank that sequencing curve, the blue one, that was the Human Genome Project back in 2000. The government sponsored that huge effort to to sequence that first human genome. That is why that curve has dropped over the last 20 years. You go back to the 50s, 50% of the microchip industry was purchased by the DoD. Okay, so you wanna, you happy we have that? Uh, Moore's Law on Intel here in the United States, that's thanks to Department of Defense. ARPANET, okay, this is ARPANET in 1969 and 1982. There's a decade where the government was essentially creating this technology. Uh, that again, thank you very much. We get to have Cisco, we get to have Google, we get to have Facebook, right? Uh, the US needs to make these investments in emerging technologies, particularly ones that have uh, exponential improvements, so that we can have this soft power project our values. Uh, and I'm thankful that all of you are in the room learning about this today so that we can hopefully do that. My email is up there. Uh, I'd be happy to talk with any of you at any time. Thanks so much.
5: Okay, great. Thank you so much. And um, thanks for inviting me here. I'm really happy to be here. So I'm kind of going to bring up the tail end of this discussion, and I really have the advantage of going last because um, both Gigi and Jason have really teed up things well, um, um, in particular looking at the future of where synthetic biology is going. Um, So I'm waiting for my slides to come up here. Okay, there we go. So, um, what I'm going to talk about now is to talk a little bit about what does this um, for those of us here in D.C. for policymakers. what does our landscape look, look like right now after you've ju- what you've just heard? Um, what does the policy landscape look, look like right now, and how do we both uh, promote and protect the bioeconomy? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a little bit about both of those things during my comments. Also what, I've li- what I would like to do is relate to you um, a number of different viewpoints and studies that have looked at this question. Um, And hopefully one thing that you'll get from it is that there's a common operating picture that's starting to emerge um, from a couple of different studies and from a couple of different viewpoints. Um, So the first of these is uh, Gigi mentioned the synthetic biology study that the National Academies did. Um, I was also involved with one that just released a couple of weeks ago called Safeguarding the Bioeconomy. And why did the government ask the academies to do this study? Well, first of all, the government has recognized that the bioeconomy, all of these kinds of new things that we can do with biology, is becoming a driver of our economy here in the United States. And that means that, as you know, our economic security is. More and more tightly tied to our national security, right? Um, and so, to the extent that the bioeconomy, biological manufacturing, things we can make with biology, is becoming a bigger piece of our economy, we, ind- we need to understand how that's how that's working. So, this study was a, it was a very large tasking, and unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to, to do it justice in just a couple of slides today. So, I really encourage you to take a look at it. Um, We were tasked with how to define the bioeconomy. What is it? What are we including in what we call the bioeconomy? How are we going to measure it economically and financially? How do we make sure that the US has leadership and can we forecast where it's going so that the US can maintain some leadership in this space? And then the other part of it was looking at the security aspects of the bioeconomy. And in particular, we looked at some data and cybersecurity things. So, it was a very tall order within a very short time period. Um, so let me just cover the high points of this, but I'm happy to talk about, um, answer questions about it. Here are some of the themes that are running through this report. One. Transdisciplinary integration is driving the bioeconomy. We heard about engineering, we heard about biology, we heard about biotechnology. Okay? All these different things are contributing to the bioeconomy as a whole. Absolutely, we need to measure, track, and analyze it. And that means we need to have the right metrics and tools to be able to do that. We're good at measuring lots of other things in our in our economy, right? We don't know how to measure this yet properly. Um, And and a big one for me is balancing the security concerns with the openness. Gigi mentioned that we have a very established uh, tradition of success in the life sciences in this country on being very open and collaborative and in a sharing um, capacity. So how do we balance that, which is our normal mode of being successful, with the ability to secure what's going on in the bioeconomy? And then the last is the importance of coordination and collaboration. So with these things in mind, I'm not going to go. This report has nine recommendations in it. And I'm going to talk about one. (laughs) But again, I'm happy to answer questions about all the others. One thing that we stressed in the report was recommendation number three. We don't have in the federal government a single place or a single agency or a single department whose job it is to be in charge of the bioeconomy, right? It's it's occupying so many different sectors. It's occupying so many different places. So many agencies are funding things that relate to the bioeconomy, but no single agency is in charge. So we've, re- and by the way, we don't have a national strategy or any kind of a cohesive national statement that says, here's where we believe the US, where we believe we should be going in this space. So, our, uh, a big recommendation we had in the report is for at the level of the White House, and you heard um, some uh, mention of the bioeconomic summit that was held at the White House recently, so there's some momentum for this, um, to have a government wide strategic coordinating body. And if that were to happen, we could include scientists. We can include economists. We could include the regulatory people. We could include security people. We could bring everybody who needs to be at the table to the table and say, OK, what's our strategy? How do we need to go forward? And how can we do this? So many of the other recommendations we make in the report could be nested under this piece if it gets done. Um, and so that's why, the, why I wanted to pick out this particular one to show you. So um, I want to talk a little bit about the security and, um, uh, of the bioeconomy. And in doing this, on this particular study, we had to think about, OK, this uh, industry is spanning many sectors. We heard about materials. We heard about crops. We heard about pharmaceuticals, food, agriculture. OK, how, how can we talk about what some of the specific risks might be? So we decided to just take a 10,000-foot view and say, what is the thing that we are trying to prevent? What is the bad thing we're trying to prevent? And that is that the U.S. does not have a successful, thriving, robust bioeconomy, right? That's that's what we want. That's where we're going forward towards, and that's what we want um, for the country. So if we go from that standpoint and say, "Okay, what are the things that would prevent us from having a robust bioeconomy, and work our way backwards from that list. So from there, we kind of found that the risks fell into one of two categories, a failure to promote the bioeconomy. Or a failure to protect the bioeconomy. So again, I can't go into all the details of the report here, but if we just look at failure to promote the bioeconomy, these may seem like some very basic kind of uh, no-brainer things, but not doing them is actually a choice, right? So we have to choose to do these things so that they're not neglected. And that's why we wanted to call them out in the report so that they, don't, they aren't neglected. So, for example, insufficient U.S. government RD, R&D investment. We know that's a success story for the life sciences. So, if we continue supporting the R&D that fuels the bioeconomy at the basic sciences level, we're going to be promoting the bioeconomy. Um, things like not having the workforce we need to staff the bioeconomy. We need people who want to be in these jobs and do this work for these companies that are starting up, things like not having an efficient intellectual property environment or an inefficient regulatory environment. So let me give you an example of what we mean by that. So if you're a company and you're developing an innovative product that's made from biology that's not been made before in this way, and you have to approach getting that that product approved for use in the country. If there's confusion about that path forward for you, you might as a big company say, hmm, I'm gonna choose something a little more solid, a little less risky. I won't go for that innovative product because this other product I have that's just an iterative improvement over something we already do, I know what the regulatory path is for that and I can go forward with that with less risk, right? That's what we don't want. If we want innovation and new products and new things, We're going to have to clarify a regulatory environment for those things, right? And we also want to have public trust in these things. So all along, we need to have people like Jason and others who can get up and explain to people who don't know what synthetic biology is, what the benefits of it can be, and the advantages. Okay, so switching gears. What about failure to protect the bioeconomy? So again, this is a long laundry list that I won't go through all of these, but each one of these items that has an asterisk next to it, we had a recommendation in the report for how to um, try to mitigate these risks. So um, um, again, one easy thing we were able to do in the report was say, uh, for these failures to protect the bioeconomy, some of these things are already going on now. So it was, it was in some ways, um, we were able to uh, list these because they're ex- examples of where they're going on. So for example, um, the United States is sharing data sets broadly, internationally. Again, we do this. But that doesn't mean that every other country is, is symmetrically sharing the, their data sets with us. Um, and so th- having that constrained access could be a detriment to our bioeconomy. Um, Other examples, cyber risks. So we have in the report an entire uh, list of all the hacking and cyber intrusions that have occurred, primarily in the health sector, but in the ag sector and other sectors as well, where people are looking for this data and it's unprotected. So again, some of these things are just very fundamental, but we have to be aware of them, we have to be thinking about them, and we have to be able to figure out how to protect them. Um, We called some things economic attack, you've been reading about this in the news where we've had some infiltration of um, research uh, infrastructure in the United States, universities, small companies, others where uh, people are are trying to get intellectual property and take it back to their own country. So again, these are things, we've made some recommendations about how to mitigate these um, and there are things that I hope um, going forward we can, we can pos- have an, a posture of awareness and um, uh, ways to mitigate them. So, I'm going to talk really briefly now about another study I was involved with. Um, And this study I did with um, my research partner, Sarah Carter, who some of you may know, um, who does a lot of policy work here. And we decided that um, we wanted to actively engage with synthetic biology companies. Let's sit around the table with companies and ask them, okay, you guys have a lot of capability. You guys are starting up, um, in many cases, in a new industry, you tell us the things that you care about most you tell us where your liabilities are and you tell us where you've struggled in um, in this economic um, environment in in uh, making the uh, bioeconomy move forward so first we kind of built looked across the landscape and and this is just a very very simple diagram so it shows you here are all the different sectors that the bioeconomy is is touching, right? So pharma, chem, fuel, we've, we've already talked about these. And then if you look at the, at the horizontal bars, those are representing the actual capabilities that people in the industry are using. So when we talked to the experts in this space, um, we said, OK. Um, people are very concerned. Gigi talked about, for example, the DIY and the iGEM folks. There are a number of tools like DNA synthesis and genome editing tools that we can consider are very widely available. Do we want to care about that? And do we want to make sure that there are people who are using them are safe and secure? Absolutely. But as you move up this. Ladder of capabilities and the things that the kinds of products that Jason described to you, they're really going to require sort of a meta conglomeration, a networking of all these capabilities and skill sets together. And really, those are the most powerful tools and those w- are where the most powerful IP protections and, uh, c- and where companies want to protect that kind of data and those capabilities, that's where the investment needs to go, right? And that's where our security considerations need to go, okay? Um, okay, so uh, what were some of the cross-cutting issues? And these are similar to some things we found in the National Academy study. Talent and workforce. We need people to people the bioeconomy. We need people interested in this. And they don't have to be people who have PhDs. People who could be working at some of these companies could be community college graduates or people who've worked in other kinds of manufacturing factories, right? But they need to know how to work in a biological factory. Um, Scale up is a big challenge on many levels. What are the right funding models? How can government and uh, startups and big industries work together? What are the right funding models in that space? And again, digital biosecurity comes up every time we have this conversation. Okay, so because I'm from DoD, I'm just gonna show um, a DoD slide here because I think that synthetic biology offers huge promise um, in the DoD landscape. And uh, I think that DoD has all the exact same cross-cutting issues, when we, when we had this uh, meeting with the Symbio companies, DoD is gonna have all the same challenge spaces. Scale-up, the, the right funding models, talent and digital biosecurity, they're all there. DOD has the additional problem of what I call strategic confusion and that is what products does DOD need that are specialized for the DOD and how do we go about getting them? Right? We've known over the last uh, however many years that the defense industrial base is weakening, right? Um, I think um, um, Chairman Dunford said it best when he said it's beginning to hollow out. We We have fewer and fewer companies that are able to make the things that DoD needs to buy, right? So if we want to have DoD uh, move forward with biotech, we're going to need companies that can provide what DoD needs. So I've, I've shown just a couple of cool pictures over here. Um, actually, Jason already mentioned the spider silk. Um, parka, that's very cool. Um, and I think DoD would be very interested in that for, um, in, from a materials perspective. The Lalo Tactical Boot is another one that um, has shown some interest on the DoD side. Evolva is making um, materials Um, One in particular called resveratrol, which is a polymer that's very heat resistant that could be uh, used on ship hulls for the Navy. It could also be used in many other kinds of uh, building materials, um, firefighter um, equipment, lots of opportunity there. Uh, Biomason is making those cool biobricks from algae. Imagine if DOD needed to make some um, very rapid airstrips for uh, landings in particular places for aircraft. So all of these have Great potential for DOD, and I think if we can meet some of these challenges, get beyond the strategic confusion and figure out what kind of products we want and build the correct funding models, um, we could move forward and get some of these. Okay, and I'm I'm happy to answer more questions about those. The very last thing I wanted to mention, um, and I I put a little uh, insignia of the ChemBioDefense logo up there to remind myself to talk about this, is that we are in the middle of an outbreak in China right now of novel coronavirus. I don't need to tell you this, but I have to shout out. And John Cumbers just published an article in Forbes in his column highlighting these seven companies, and there's probably more, uh, Jason may know of others, that are working very hard on synthetic biology tools to combat the, uh, the outbreak. So we are have companies that are looking for universal vaccines, developing PCR tests for and actually I think GeneScript is even making some of these PCR um, tools for researchers available for free. Um, in, um, Inovio and Twist are working on a DNA vaccine and Moderna um, just got a huge bolus of funds from CEPI. That's the Gates Foundation philanthropic effort um, on an MRNA vaccine. Um, diagnostics. One of the DARPA platform performers is working on antibodies and um, all kinds of diagnostic assays. So this uh, This environment, these companies, they're really stepping up to the plate um, to do, uh, and many, some of these companies don't specialize in farms, most of them do, but for example, Twist is doing lots of different things, and they're really stepping up to the plate in trying to help with the outbreak. So it just shows the promise of what we can do with this technology. So with that, I'm going to finish, and um, I will be happy to take your questions at the end.
1: well thanks everybody Um, so what we're going to do next is a couple of moderated questions um, and then we'll take questions from the audience Uh, as a reminder for those of you who who are tuned in online we are taking questions online as well Um, and I've got my iPad here to remind me to look at it and take your questions Um, but to start out um, I'm gonna throw the sort of hardest question uh, that Diane teed up for us at the end this idea of strategic confusion so what does a strategy look like for synthetic biology particularly when i think all of you teed up different aspects of the trade space right we've got this dual use concern that Gigi mentioned Um, we've got the innovation that we see in in the private sector that jason is talking about and this this need to grow our defense industrial base and secure it from a a growth perspective Um, so how what does the strategy look like that balances all of those things from each of your fields start here want me to yeah okay. since you so brought it up i i
5: i, I invited that <laughs> yes i you did <laughs> um so so i think that's first of all that is a hard question i think there's a lot of pieces to the question so um i think and here here in in dc and i'm a policy person so i can say this um you know we we make strategies for everything right we we build a lot of strategies we write a lot of reports and the key here, I think, is to not um, write something that's going to sit on a shelf, but really have something that has um, a way to implement it to go forward. So I think there are some basic s and pieces. In other words, what, what kinds of things that could we do um, on the s and side that the government funds through our agencies um, that can boost the bioeconomy? That's one piece. And then I think there's this middle piece which gets to some of the things that I talked about during my slides, which is, um, are there barriers and bottlenecks that um, companies are facing? Because look, we we are good at having biotech and life sciences research feed into what corporations do. But in this this special arena of synthetic biology and what we're calling the bioeconomy, there, there can be some very specific hurdles. One I mentioned was that regulatory confusion, right? Um, having products that we're not quite sure how we wanna make them safe and for people to use and get them approved. So, so to the extent that we can have some things in that middle transition space that help companies move forward, I think that's another chunk. And then the last piece um, is at least on the, on the DOD side, if there is a role for the government to actually be investing in very particular kinds of products that are for government use, um, how are we going to do that piece? Because right. some, some of the S&T stuff as it goes forward, that's gonna be a natural evolution. There'll be cool things that people discover and they make into products and that's great. And let's just smooth away for those. And then on the other side, you know, wh- what are the strategic things that government really wants and wants to buy and wants to support and how do we want to go about doing that? I'll toss it back to you guys.
2: I mean, <clears throat> maybe the only thing I'd add, the, uh, you, you can kind of maybe punt on it a little bit as long as you win the industrial base. In other words, you could just say, look, I, it's hard for me to predict what, you know, uh, computers will be doing in 2010 when I'm the semiconductor industry in the 50s. But my gut is that the processing of information is going to end up mattering to the Department of Defense, and so I want to make sure that the U.S. industrial base is there to support me when I figure it out, right? And, I, and to me, that's a little bit the intuition I have with biology. I mean, like, look, it makes our atmosphere, it cleans our water, we're made out of biology, right? Like, the chances are it's going to matter, right? Um, and so uh, I think we can just invest to make sure it's there waiting for us when we need it.
3: I would only add that um so it does it's it's great that the National Academies recommended a um kind of a cross-cutting overarching office um some su- support to promote the bioeconomy as a whole because some of the advantages that the bioeconomy is is likely to give you are hard to do like a, a one-to-one tra- um replacement for so just like spider silk. Um, the DoD buys a lot of fabric, right? Or has, you know, has asked a lot of fabric. So that is, you could see that they might want to use that spider silk, but it's, it's, it's different than that because it, there are other security elements like being able to control your manufacturing, being able to have distributed manufacturing, being able to um, own all the pieces. There's other advantages that um, might make the spider silk, which is kind of pricey, um, more affordable if you look at all the, the whole life cycle of the, um, of the product. Um, so I, I guess it's, just, it's good to have an overarching promotion for the bioeconomy to, to see that holistic um, uh, benefit that you might get out of biology, rather than just saying, well, okay, we're buying this widget and we can make it from biology, but it costs a little more.
1: Um, maybe we'll continue with what we're doing. So, Jason, you mentioned the importance of owning the industrial base, um, but we've heard that there are barriers and bottlenecks that companies are facing. Um, So from your perspective, what are some of those barriers and bottlenecks within the private sector and then with how some of these emerging biotech companies are interfacing with the government?
2: Yeah, I mean, so from my standpoint, there's sort of two things on the government side. Um, I think there will be more and more regulatory questions just as new products come out. I'm a little less worried about that. I mean, I, I think there is there is a fair bit of, you know, if you're launching a new drug, there's the FDA. If you're rolling out food, there's the FDA again. If it's going to be a microbe to do the fertilizer stuff, it's the EPA, right? Like, you know, the, the often there are product-specific regulatory agencies. Um, the the thing I'm more worried about is, is sort of early-stage R&D funding, right? Like, the sort of thing that the government can fund pre-commercially because we know it's an important area of technology. The Human Genome Project is a great example. That was way in advance of that being economically rational for any company to be doing it, but because of the Human Genome Project, I would argue is why the United States has Illumina, which is the leading genome uh, sequencing machine company by, you know, has uh, probably 80% of the market. Okay, Uh, and so those early stage R&D investments need to be made now on the programming side Right? what is the big programming project what what involves the writing and programming of cells similar in scope and scale to the human genome project we should be doing something like that Um, uh, and then generally I, I think the other area is like places that are big spenders DOD and others like buying from the from the these early industries like the DOD did to semiconductors in the 50s where it was like half of the demand for the industry finding those early applications and sort of betting on it a little ahead of scale DOD has some unique needs where it can actually be an early customer for some pretty advanced technology that again doesn't really have commercial demand and maybe that's not necessary sometimes it's not that wasn't as necessary later in the game in the in t- telecom and internet but certainly in the beginning arpanet was totally non-commercially relevant Right, you know? uh, So the internet was essentially booted up on, on big government contracts to create a telecommunication network that was more resilient. The DOD was the only customer for it at the beginning. Do you
1: guys have anything to, to add on to the barriers and bottlenecks? It's covered it, all right, awesome. Um, so following up from that, we've been sort of pointing towards the need for targeted investment. And we saw, you know, I think it was $4 billion in the bio, or focused on synthetic biology in 2018. Um, So, where are the areas for target investment? Where do you foresee it really shaping some of these government customers? Um, Because I think as policymakers, we often struggle to make the leap from, "I, I, I understand I can code these cells, now, how do I actually use it? Um, so where do you see it disrupting some of the government customers and who should be investing in key areas
2: mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah your government employee yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I, so I, I think you'll see it in in areas like advanced materials i think it's a great one mm-hmm. right so you brought up SpireSuck, lots of things like that i think distributed manufacturing so that like biom that company mentioned that it can do the uh airfield, airstrips, right? Like, yeah, it's hard to build the entire manufacturing chain to create an airstrip out in the middle of nowhere. Biology builds stuff out in the middle of nowhere, right? You know, that's what it does. Uh, And so, you know, those kind of, I think, distributed production, I think things like materials um, are are some of the areas that are, I think, some early kind of obvious applications, yeah. Um,
3: I would, so it's been exciting to watch some non, uh, I think, non-health Companies have been doing really well because of, you know, FDA regulation is a challenge for small companies in general, whether they're um, using new biotech uh, solutions or not. Um, it's just a, a big, uh, established regulatory path that's uh, that can be very cumbersome. So uh, Synlogic is a great exception. Um, they're doing you know they're they're proceeding through clinical trials pretty fast, but. Um, but in general, I think there, a lot of the companies have been non-non uh, medical, yeah, or non-therapeutic.
4: Uh,
5: yeah. yeah, non-therapeutic. Yeah, I was just going to say I agree with that. I think that, um, in the investments that DoD has made to date or um, across materials, sensors, and human performance <laughs> products. And clearly, the materials is I think the lowest hanging fruit of those three, um, and that. The, on, on the other end, the human performance um, aspects are they're all some of those will require clinical trials and safety trials and things that are going to be a little further down the road. but mm-hmm. um, I, think, I think materials are, are primed for hanging fruit right now.
1: Okay. So we are a couple days away from at least the DoD budget dropping um, and uh, you know it, so it's about to be budget season. Um, not every technology gets all the money that it wants, right? So um, you've obviously made the case for places to invest in in synthetic biology, um, but what are some things that the government can do to encourage um, the growth of the bioeconomy, encourage protection of the bioeconomy that don't involve making extra investments? Um, And the counter to that would be what are some things that they could do um, that might unintentionally hinder growth of the bioeconomy?
3: Um, so, I mean, this is just because I, I can say this and I, I don't have any faith that it's going to be uh, taken up, but um, it ma- makes sense and there are a number of reports that give, um, that, that, that also make this recommendation, um, but why, why are we training people and then kicking them out? Um, we need to, if people um, come to our universities and get their PhDs and do postdoctoral fellowships, we should be encouraging them to stay. And um, people have said, you know, why don't we just staple a green card to every PhD uh, uh, diploma? Um, this makes sense, this was done before, it should be done now.
2: That's yeah, here, here, yeah. You're 100% right. Especially yeah. for emerging areas of technology, it's, it's a huge unfair advantage of the United States to pull those people in. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
5: Um, I would add to that too, there's, there's no cost to doing um, Best practices in some of these areas. So I mentioned um, digital biosecurity as one of the things that came up in, in numerous places in the academy study, in the study that Sarah and I did. And um, you know, there's there's a lot of um, available tools to do um, best practices for cybersecurity. <laughs> uh, that every even if you're a small, tiny startup with you know three people in it, you can avail yourself of those things, right? Mm-hmm. And and, and um, so I think I think some of that doesn't require huge investment. It just requires the coordination to sit down and determine what those best practices are. Um, that could be really helpful.
1: Um, so follow up question on the, and this will be my final question. So if you start um, thinking about questions you might want to ask, uh, we'll start collecting those in a second. Um, but you know, talking about the importance of sort of openness. Um, and engaging with the international community Um, so a lot of times in the context of these emerging technology discussions it's talked about in the context of competition with china um, and in addition to competition with china there are opportunities to engage with the international community and lead a a broader international community Um, so what does that look like in the context of synthetic biology and are there opportunities for the u.s to take a bigger role in leading either the private sector internationally or engaging with governments who are doing research in this space.
2: Strong, good. Please, you go first.
1: Okay, so
5: I I actually, I meant to say this on one of my slides and and I'm glad you asked the question because I realized I forgot to say it. Um, So when I talked about the failure to promote the bioeconomy, one of the things on there was this continued investment in the R&D that's driving the bioeconomy and I think Um, What partners with that is the leadership that comes with it, with that US investment, so that in an international arena, we have scientists who are leading that R&D effort, and and, and that automatically puts them in a position where they can talk about ethical norms of the science, where they can be at international meetings, and they can be well-respected and be that voice um, that's contributing to what can make a, a level playing field for these sciences internationally, right? And they can help be a voice for why, you know, more reciprocal sharing between us and other nations is a good idea. Um, And they can be, it's best for them to be doing that from a position of, you know, strong U.S. investment and and backing behind that. I don't know if you guys agree or your...
3: Absolutely. Um, When the recent discussions about germline edits um, in humans that were touched off by um, you know the the CRISPR babies um, in China um, and the resulting controversy. Um, WHO has this new um, this committee to form recommendations for how one uh, how this should how experiments or how work like this should go on in the future. Um, the scientists who are leading this area um, are contributing to that. It's not. It's um, if you're not at the technological edge, then you would not have the ability to shape the, the norms that will come out of that process or any other. But I just wanted to, to mention the, I'm sure many of you are familiar with NSDD 189, National Security Directive. Um, uh, there's an extra D in there, 189, <laughs> um, that, uh, that uh, came out of actually a, a National Academies Study, um, which basically said that even though you are giving up some security by um, by keeping things as as much as possible in the open, um, the the amount of security you get from um, a record of achievement and um, being able to to lead in in this in an area a technological area more than gives you security benefits as well, and and so uh, that is uh, life sciences are open. Um, and, and to the extent possible, um, you know, physics and other, other areas are, are uh, open as well for, for basic research.
2: Yeah, I, I might add just, you know, from my standpoint, I think this is a particularly important topic. Maybe two aspects to it. One, I think no question, uh, moral and ethical uh, questions are gonna come hand in hand with this technology, even more so I'd say than communications technology and computers. Um, and there's gonna be a lot of value judgments uh, and we're gonna wanna, project U.S. values. Uh, And the way we do that is by uh, being the one setting the standards, right? And the way you set the standards is by being the one who is openly pushing stuff, right, Um, and we did that very well in communications, right, and obviously countries can choose to, you know, if China wants to have their own Google, they can, but everyone else runs on ours, everyone else runs on Facebook, you know, right, like you you win, the US has historically won through pushing open standards, I think that's absolutely gonna be the case with biology, biology does not respect borders well, you are seeing that with coronavirus right now, right, Um, it's gonna be an international technology, Uh, so we need to be investing in creating these assets that allow us to set those standards. Um, And so I think there are projects like that you can imagine to push out, that the U.S. could be pushing now to establish that kind of weight um, for us uh, in those future negotiations, basically.
1: Wonderful. All right, so we will start taking questions from the audience. We've got two microphones, I think. Um, While you're collecting your thoughts, we have one question from online that I will start with. Um, and it, it ties in nicely to um, Gigi's remarks at the beginning, talking about the personalization of biology. Um, and so the person online was asking about sort of the, the national security risks of personalized biology sort of from a weaponization perspective, if you could talk a bit about what that looks like.
3: Sure, I, well, well, I'm gonna make some assumptions about what they're getting at. Um, a few. Uh, Years ago, there was an interesting article in The Atlantic um, called uh, Hacking Hacking the the President's President's DNA, DNA. Mm -hmm. Um, theorizing that uh, a group could come up, could create a virus that would affect a lot of people, but would kill one person um, based on their knowledge of that person's uh, genetic code. And and of course, the the scenario was to to the president. Um, that That article actually came out before CRISPR. Um, and people, leading scientists thought it was possible, but th- there is a lot of, um, there, the risks of that type of thing, um, I think would have, uh, there would be a lot of research and development that would need to go into something like that. And that's kind of the value of the National Academies report that I mentioned that we were a part of, um, to look, to be able to systematically evaluate um, articles like that and say just how worried should we be And just to to step back and walk through it and say you know take away the hype and the and the the fear um, and just you know to walk through like what is our security vulnerability and so when you put it when you walk through it it becomes a lot more complicated to do something like that a lot more complicated to do something like that um, than you know
1: than something else. All right, looks like we have a question up here. Yes. Me.
0: Thank you so much. Robert from National Intelligence Council. This question's for uh, Ginko, um, Jason at Ginko. Um, you showed a wonderful slide showing how you were scaling up, how you were achieving real economies of scale on the programming. And my question is, are you at the point, are you at a threshold, where you think you have sufficient data to train machine learning or AI on your data sets if so, who else has that? And is sort of being a scaled actor in that space where you're running all the processes yeah. actually give you a competitive or comparative advantage to apply those sort of data demanding approaches to try and get a sort of second order level of innovation?
2: Yeah, yeah, great question. Yeah, uh, the answer is yes, you can apply those those types of methods to large data sets in biology. Um, The way you get large data sets is through, essentially, the automation and scaling, right? So you kind of can't get the second one. You can't get the data without that. If you think, like, kind of Google and software, they had to build the data centers to ultimately generate what now is a large data asset that they can run machine learning on. Um, Very similar in biology. But to give you a sense of scale, you know, by the end of this year, we'll have characterized more proteins than have been characterized in the protein data bank, which is the public repository of characterized uh, proteins. So, so the, that, the, the scale inflection is absolutely happening, and I think that will matter quite a lot. Um, I also think it matters from, you know, we have GenBank, which is our, our genome database, just is a sequence genomes out, you know, from nature and from humans. Um, that's, a, that's really been built up by the government. It's kind of a, a public asset. Um, I think that's a thing that needs to be massively expanded um, by the government, separate from commercial uh, and it needs to be expanded to include all the non-human genomes out in essentially in, in the 50 states. We should be sequencing every plant, animal, micro, bird, everything, because in those things are little pieces of nanotechnology like that flagella I just showed you, and those are a national asset. right? And by having that that's available to our industry and it becomes a source and I think we would ultimately like to make it open to the world and it would be a way to, for us to project standards. But that would be an example of a data asset that really works at big scale. It doesn't work that well at small scale. You don't know where certain things are lurking. You kind of got to sequ- sequence everything and then oh my gosh we find these things of value right. That, that, it, it's, the, it's the mass of the data that actually lets you get a lot more value from it when you only have a little like we do today. Not nearly as valuable. Does that make sense? So, so like those are the kind of projects I actually think the government could be doing right now to ensure the United States ends up winning this economic base. Can you comment about how China's doing that? Oh yeah, China's doing that. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, so, so BGI um, in China will sequence, um, they're, actually, they, they're, they're sequencing from other countries, in fact, uh, and have like sort of, sort of like particularly really strong IP terms on that, um, and they'll do that really at cut rates uh, to build up, I think, essentially, the kind of asset you're talking about. I think they're unlikely to do what we do at GenBank and push that out. In fact, they don't today. Uh, and so I think this is an area of differentiation. You know, I think that um, we should play to the strengths of the United States, which is openness, uh, and make the biggest asset and make it globally available.
1: Other questions? Right here.
4: Hello, thank you. Um, I wanted to say thank you to CSIS and, and the panel here for this important topic. So this is really, uh, REALLY NEEDS TO GET OUT THERE AND WHAT RESONATED ONE THING THAT RESONATED WAS THE PROMOTE um, ACTIVITY AND GETTING the COMMUNICATION OUT THERE SO FOR LAYMEN AND PEOPLE THAT ARE NEW TO THE INDUSTRY UNDERSTANDING IT IT'S COMPLICATED THERE'S A LOT OF THAT GOES ON UNDERNEATH BUT GETTING OUT THE USE CASES AND THE BENEFITS AND SO ON AND, and MAYBE GETTING SOME PROJECTS invest in PROJECTS THAT HAVE REALLY BIG EARLY SPLASHY WINS Could be ways to kind of get this out there and get people thinking about it you know kind of like the president you know has a hundred days to get something big done Um, so your your thoughts on promote and you know getting the word out and, and thanks again for this conference.
2: I'd be curious how other countries are doing. What, what, you know, have you gone and looked sort of systematically? You know, how do you see other places f- promoting like China today? You know, like what's a? I'd be kind of curious at the counterpoint. I know what we're doing, uh, which I think is not enough yet. Um, but I'm s- sort of curious.
3: I mean, the UK has, uh, I think, um, I don't know, this isn't in any report, but it seemed like it was uh, when they lost, was it Pfizer closed a big yeah. plant? I mean, they, they started investing a lot more in synthetic biology and set up a, um, a section at Imperial College. Mm-hmm. Um, okay.
5: Yeah, there's a number of, uh, there are, gosh, I think um, probably, I don't, I don't know the number of countries now that have bioeconomy strategies. Yeah. Right. There are so many and they're all slightly different. I think um, in the report we did for the National Academies, um, we kind of binned them into different categories and some of them are very sort of ecology based and they're all about improving ecology and, so, and some of them are just about biosustainment. So you start here and just everything that you manufacture will be in a circle of sustainment with no waste. Um, and then others are, are more like, I, I think the U.S. is unique in that ours has a firm biotech base to it um, because, because we're about actually making products um, for you know, things that people need. So I, I, from my perspective, hmm. I think that's, that's kind of how, the, how it looks to me from what the rest of the world is doing. But Mary Maxson is really the expert on that. <laughs> so. the
1: questions? Looks like we've got one here.
0: Bobby Pestronco, layperson, can you explain the terms of, that you used of asymmetric research constraints, or aspect of the NIS report? What's, right. What does that mean?
5: So um, we actually talked about that in two different contexts. One would be if uh, the researchers in the U.S. we placed constraints on them that researchers in other countries don't have, right? And so there could be. You know, People getting ahead. Um, part part of our our, our uh, task in the study was to ask the question about U.S. leadership in this space, and are we ahead, and how do we stay ahead? Um, and so that so we didn't want we don't want to unnecessarily put restraints on U.S. researchers in that context. But then the other part of the asymmetric was this um, openness um, and data sharing issue. So the U.S. has this a very open sharing collaborative. Um, uh, way that we do research in this country, and again, yeah. that's that's been very successful for us. We've we've won a great biotechnology, you know, industry in this country by doing that. Um, but other countries aren't doing the same. So, in, so for example, some countries like China, um, I think I think Italy now has um, rules and regulations about we will not share any genomic data outside our country. Um, And if you want to work with us us on this kind of data, then you have to come here and do it, and we own the IP. So that's an asymmetric um, kind of situation. Um, We want people to, we want to work with other countries, but but we want to have it more of a level playing field.
1: We got a question back there.
3: Hi, Jason, you talked about how uh, SynBio is kind of in its teenage phase, and you also compared it um, to the co- computing revolution that was happening, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the lessons that SynBio can learn from kind of where it is in the stage, um, relative stage to the internet.
2: Super good question, yeah. Uh, I think about that a lot, actually. Um, the so I think one mistake people often make is they jump too far ahead. Like they're like, what's gonna be like the Google or the GitHub of synthetic biology? And and we're really much more in like the IBM era. Like we we are we are inventing the term cell programming, like they were inventing data processing, right? Like like we are birthing that out. And so that so a big part of this is educ like education, right? Like like, IBM had to do a lot of education in that era so people could understand what a computer was so that then it could be adopted so broadly. Like, that that's a big takeaway from my standpoint right now. And what I've just gotten a little afraid of is, like, we've been doing a good job in increasingly educating the private sector, and we've been actually failing at educating the public sector on this technology. And, and so, like, that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm very happy you're all here, right? You know, I think that, to me, is a key takeaway of, like, the period we are in, it's like, what is a computer, right? And it's going to matter to you, right? Um, you know, what is synthetic biology is going to matter to you. That, that was my big, after looking at kind of the whole thing and thinking about where we were, it's, it's sort of IBM in the 50s or 60s, yeah, or
1: earlier, yeah. So I think we have time for one more question. So we'll take that one. John Mayer's Resources for the Future, in addition to agriculture and pharmaceuticals, what manufacturing industries do you think you're gonna destroy over the next 50 years?
2: <laughs> so, I'll, let me make a point about this, actually. So, so, um, so there's obviously like a lot of concern, I'd say, around like automation and information technology and how that impacts jobs and things like that. I think we actually have a, a little bit of an unfair advantage when it comes to biology. So, if you think about how software gets developed, gets written on the coasts, right? You have these like, sort of highly professionalized jobs to be software developers. And then you have the deployment of software in giant data centers, which are basically like huge facilities next to cheap power that nobody works at, more or less, okay, right? Cell programming is gonna be different. The programming of cells is going to be a very sophisticated, highly educated, I get, I get the whole thing type of job. The deployment of biology, right? Like our version of a data center Well, that's a fermenter in St. Louis or a field in Iowa. We already know how to deploy biology at scale. It's industrial farming. It's fermentation. So what's going to happen is the margins on farming when you aren't farming corn, which is literally an unbelievable piece of nanotechnology that we eat, okay? And instead, you actually start growing microchips. I think that's going to be great for farmers, right? So if you play out the tape on where we're going with biotechnology, these assets, this expertise in in growing biology and doing the deployment is actually gonna be a much more valuable job because it's going to, you're gonna start making much more valuable stuff, right? And so I am actually quite bullish on the, on the impacts of this from the standpoint of this benefiting a quite wide swath of people if we actually succeed at, at this technology. But yes, of course, it is gonna, it's gonna change a lot about the economy, but but at the end of the day, that's it's gonna happen regardless, so we, we should just get ahead of that. I,
5: I, I was gonna add one more. that, that was. A great response and i would just add one more thing to it which is um so it, it also affects whether or not we make things here and we do have this great farming in the middle of the country we have all this capability to grow things right and that means we could do a lot of things here with um, you know labor in this country instead of farming it out to another country um, where we would have to pay laborers in another country to do it so I don't know what the, the trade-offs would be yeah. um, um, because, because I'm, I'm not an expert in those areas, but I think, I think that's something to think about as well.
1: well. That was a wonderful question to end on, actually, um, because it sort of tees up our next discussion. Um, so as Andrew mentioned at the beginning, this is gonna be a series of discussions focused on synthetic biology. Our next um, event is on March 17th, and it's focused specifically on the economic, societal, and international implications of synthetic biology. Um, So hopefully we'll discuss more about that then. Um, But for now, if we could thank the panelists uh, and thank you all for coming today.